Hello and welcome to Powerhouse Politics. I'm ABC News political director Rick Klein. And I'm ABC senior congressional correspondent Mary Bruce. John Carl somehow missing in action, sleeping in maybe after that Nationals victory. I have a feeling the Nats are involved one you way or You think there's another. some reason for him to, not to be here. Yes. Well, they've won game one. Uh, and uh, of the uh, of the never ending uh, baseball postseason, and you've got a never ending series that you have been covering <laughs> up on Capitol Hill, the impeachment drama, and and Mary, look, you, you've had a lot of nutty days up on Capitol Hill. I have to think that Bill Taylor's testimony is the top diplomat. Um, in Ukraine, um, coming out, um, still employed by the State Department, asked by Mike Pompeo himself to fill this role, coming out and documenting what sure looks like the quid pro quo, point by point. That must have been an explosive day up there. It was wild. Uh, I still don't think I fully processed what happened yesterday. I mean, you have Bill Taylor, this loyal career diplomat, coming to Capitol Hill and directly implicating the president in a quid pro quo campaign to pressure Ukraine to investigate the president's rivals. Democrats, you know, emerged from the secure skiff, the secure room in the basement of the Capitol. And I mean, pick your adjective. They said it was devastating. They said it was the most damaging testimony they've seen yet because Democrats feel that that what Bill Taylor told them, what he outlined in great detail in that 15 page opening statement uh, was exactly what the president and his Republican allies have been denying, that the president, the president himself, Taylor says, uh, was directly involved uh, in this campaign to get Ukraine to investigate Biden, uh, his son, and uh, these debunked conspiracy theories about the 2016 election. And so much more detail in here because Bill Taylor documented so much of it. And because as a career diplomat, he recognized a strange pattern of behavior. And it took him a while to unpack yeah. exactly what was going on. And he took in his opening statement and uh, his testimony, he took the committees through his growing realization that something fishy was going on, that this was not uh, a one-off, that there was a whole separate channel of, of communications. Rudy Giuliani was involved in a kind of unofficial series of, of ways to get through to this uh, to, to, to the, the, the new government in Ukraine. And his realization that there were a couple of carrots that were being dangled to the Ukrainians that seemed to be uh, conditioned on this political investigation, the idea of a one-on-one meeting, an Oval Office meeting between President Zelensky and President Trump, and this much-needed hundreds of millions of dollars in military aid. Yeah, and you saw Bill Taylor trying to explain that for weeks he couldn't really figure out what was going on here, that there was, he says, no official reason given for why the millions of dollars in what he describes as critical, potentially life-saving military aid was being held up and frozen. But then he says that eventually the U.S. ambassador to the EU, Gordon Sondland, who himself has already testified, told Taylor that the president himself wanted Ukraine to announce this public investigation into his rivals, directly linking the president, saying that the president was essentially saying, you know, do what I want or else you're not getting this aid. Uh, and so it becomes, a you know, the typical tale of follow the money in many ways. And then you do, as you mentioned, have Taylor saying that there were these sort of two paths of policymaking, the one, the official route uh, w- with Taylor and others trying to, to urge for this aid, saying that this aid was so desperately needed. And on the other hand, this unofficial channel that involved Ambassador Sondland and was being led by Rudy Giuliani, the president's personal attorney, that was essentially trying to use that very same aid as leverage uh, to 
get Ukraine to do these political favors for the president. So and, and, and so let's just talk about how the Democrats are reacting to this, because they have been growing this evidence. You saw some people who previously have been skeptical about in, impeachment, like Congressman Stephen Lynch from, from Massachusetts, for instance, are now saying that, that the timeline seems to be moved up. Do you view this now as an inevitability? Is, is impeachment a vote in the House for impeachment increasingly inevitable? Yeah, I mean, right now it certainly seems that the president is staring down the very real possibility of impeachment in the House. And, and every day with, with every new detail that comes out of these closed-door depositions, it seems that you are only seeing more and more Democrats coming to that conclusion. Uh, Democrats are, though, facing an issue when it comes to the timeline here, because on one hand, we know they want to move quickly, but on the other hand, they have a lot of people that they want to talk to. Now, you know, they even have more questions for some people they've already spoken to, like Gordon Sondland. I mean, they, after what Taylor said, they're going to have a lot more questions for, for the ambassador. And, and so Democrats are continuing these closed-door depositions. They are plowing through them, but they also want to hold public hearings. They know they need to convince the American public here if they want to have any success politically with this endeavor. Uh, so it does seem, based on what we're seeing, that you know, I hate to say it, but buckle up. I mean, this is hmm. where this is going to go well into the holiday season. I hope you didn't have grand, you know, Thanksgiving plans. I, I know better than that in, in this job. And then on the Republican side, Mary, I mean, you, you have fewer Republicans who will defend the overt actions of the president. Uh, you've been talking to, you know, umpteen uh, members of Congress every day who and some of them are quite loyal to the president. But what are you picking up in terms of how they are playing defense? The overarching theme on the Republican side is that they want to talk about the process. They want to hammer Democrats, and they are, uh, for the way that they are going about this, for doing this behind closed doors, slamming Democrats repeatedly for not uh, holding a vote to to authorize this impeachment inquiry. Democrats are breaking with precedent here. Uh, But Speaker Pelosi is holding firm and insisting that under the Constitution, she doesn't have to do that, even though it has been done in every presidential impeachment in the past. But what you are not seeing from Republicans is them defending the president largely on substance. They want to, you know, they're 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 standing behind him, but they aren't willing to go out there. The majority of them that, that we've talked to certainly uh, aren't willing to say point blank that what the president did, based on what they've seen so far, was appropriate. Uh, and it is a notable. Uh, Dynamic, Yeah. And the process is, is what they definitely want to focus on. It's something the Democrats are cognizant of. They are going to a lot of Republicans are going to some great rhetorical lengths, though, to mm-hmm. defend the president. I mean, the president uh, this week uh, said on Twitter that this was a lynching. This was a lynching. And of course, that is a, a very charged term uh, with a long and sad and, and tragic history in this country. Uh, the president, um, whether he was aware of the connotations or not, of course, is not going to back down from uh, an analogy like that. And he got some some real support from Senator Lindsey Graham. This is mob rule. That's what lynching's all about. Once you, you grab somebody, you don't hear their side of the story, you destroy them. It's a kangaroo court. It's a sham. It's not the word. It's the conduct. It's political. It's not personal. And there's probably a whole podcast series to be done on Lindsey Graham. And his, <laughs> we should do that at some his point. His relationship with the president. He is among those that challenged the president back in 2016. And we're going to talk to another one of those challengers who is now also, like like Senator Graham, an ally, although from a different foreign policy perspective. We're going to talk to Senator Rand Paul in, in a few minutes. But, but Lindsey Graham in this has become such an important voice because it feels like there are a lot of talking points that emanate, emanate out of Senator Graham's mouth. Uh, at the same time that he is very much at odds and even pronounced himself disgusted by the president 
president's decision to remove troops from northern Syria. He is four square behind this president on this question of impeachment. And as the House or as the Senate Judiciary Committee, he has some say on these matters and he is seen as, as a key person. But he'll back him president up even when he calls this a lynching. Yeah. And look, Lindsey Graham right now is the president's top defender, closest ally on the Hill. I mean, I can tell you the second anything happens out of the White House, all of us go running looking for Lindsey Graham. Uh, It's why we talk to him multiple times a day. Uh, But even he said point blank to me, this is a political lynching, Lindsey Graham said. Uh, A lot of other Republicans weren't quite willing to go that far. They said they certainly believe that the president is under attack. They understand the sentiment, but it's certainly not the words they would use um, or the word they would use. I asked uh, Republican leader Mitch McConnell point blank if this is how he would characterize this inquiry. And he said, no, that it's not that that's not appropriate, not the word he would use. Um, but he's not disagreeing with, with you know, the president's belief that he is sort of under attack. Under attack. And, and, and I want to mention Senator Paul, who we'll talk to in a minute. But the, that other senator from Kentucky, Senator Mitch McConnell, up for re-election next year, of course, also uh, very much worried about projecting protecting his majority. He's, he's always an interesting guy to watch. He's going to have to set a lot of the rules, the confines of any impeachment trial. Uh, he has been already campaigning against the idea of impeachment. But I wonder... Mary, if we saw just the slightest glimmer of daylight between uh, himself and, uh, and 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 President Trump, do you want to walk us through what that was like uh, at the Capitol this week? So here's what happened. Mitch McConnell was asked at his weekly press conference about a phone call that the president claims happened between him and the Republican leader. And Trump said that McConnell saw nothing wrong in his phone call between Trump, the phone call between Trump and the Ukrainian leader. That's not exactly how Mitch McConnell sees it. Take a listen. I don't recall any conversations with the president about that phone call. That is Mitch McConnell point blank saying that he has not discussed the matter. He has not discussed the president's phone call with the Ukrainian leader with the president. And you're right. What you hear there is a little small glimmer of daylight between the Republican leader and Donald Trump. Now, Mitch McConnell has done some really uh, remarkable bending of himself into a pretzel to try to avoid saying whether or not he thinks the president's alleged behavior here is or is not appropriate. Uh, He's made clear he's going to, you know, fulfill his duty in the Senate when it comes to this impeachment uh, inquiry and hold taking it up in the Senate. But he does not want to talk about the substance of the president's alleged actions here. He is one of those Republicans who's been focusing on process. And what's really interesting about what McConnell said this week is that, of course, this comes, you know, just 24 hours after the president was in the cabinet room telling reporters that Republicans need to toughen up, <laughs> that they need to fall in line, you know, railing against uh, Mitt Romney, one of those few Republicans who has publicly condemned to the president here. And now here you have the Republican leader in the Senate, not necessarily, you know, going 100 percent behind the president. And look, Mitch McConnell uh, is is among the most frustrating people to cover, <laughs> the most fascinating people to cover. He knows exactly what he's doing when he when he utters a sentence like Absolutely. this. There are a lot of ways to answer that question and not make it a headline, not make the distinction clear. I read this, Mary, as I am aware of what's going on over at the White House. And that's not my game. That's not what I'm playing. He'll he'll defend the president. Um, and I, I don't think he's going to he's going to be suddenly a vote to convict on impeachment. But he is not going to to go along with 
aspects of his be- of the president's behavior mm-hmm. that he that involve him. And, and if, it, if it reflects on him, he's not going there. Exactly. And he's not going to let the president of the United States characterize uh, what he thinks of, of what we are learning here, of what is going on in this investigation. I have to say all of us reporters standing there sort of did a double take. He said, what? <laughs> he what? News? What? Yeah. <laughs> well, well, because it's just so unlike him. And he, you know, Mitch McConnell, if you've covered him closely as you have, too, you know, he says something like this and he sort of looks at you and gives you that nod like, that's right. Yeah. I just said what you think I said. Yeah, yeah. And it's a fa- it's a fascinating dynamic. And as you say, the president really wants his needs more than ever his troops to be in line. He needs the, um, the, the loyalty of the Republican Party. He's calling on it overtly. Demanding it. Demanding it even. Although I wonder how this begins to percolate as we've seen poll numbers rise in support of either impeachment or outright removal. Have we seen as we've seen new revelations in this inquiry, which is still really in its infancy, as you mentioned, there's yeah. a lot of public hearings. That, that have to happen. If Republicans continue to support a president, if it looks like a losing proposition politically. Well, and that's the question. Uh, and with every poll that comes out, we just saw another one this morning that shows growing support, at least for this investigation. And as we are learning more, I think what's remarkable is that you do have so many Republicans, while they do want to back the president, they also admit that there there are questions here and there is more to learn. They are sort of in some ways reserving judgment while also publicly backing the president. I feel like in a way you could judge the way that the president's um, defenses are going based on how many senators and, and congressmen on the Republican side are running away from you in, in the Capitol <laughs> on any given day. It's a little lonely sometimes. Is it, is it, yeah, the, have, you, have you noticed an uptick in you know people <laughs> pretending to be on phone calls or, or just briskly walking right past you and pretending not to see you? Has that happened recently? <laughs> I don't want to say, you know, we try not to take it personally, but, <laughs> but yes, there, there are a fair number, especially some of those key, you know, moderate Republicans who aren't, who aren't interested in really, you know, taking our phone calls these days. Well, Imagine that. It, don't take it personally. It's not, it's not personal. <laughs> All right. Uh, we will be back in just a few moments with Senator Rand Paul, Republican of Kentucky. Welcome back to Powerhouse Politics. We're pleased to be joined now by Senator Rand Paul, Republican from Kentucky and the author of the new book, The Case Against Socialism. Senator, congratulations on the book and welcome. Well, thank you. Thanks for having me on. So I want to start with the news out of Syria, Senator, because you, you've been one of the few voices inside the Senate or really anywhere in the Republican Party who has been supportive of the president's announcement of, uh, of a troop withdrawal. I'll, I want to ask, though, the president has been making noises, advisors around him making noises about putting troops back in there. He's been talking about the importance of uh, of protecting oil in in the region. Are you concerned now that there might be backsliding from this president on the question of getting out of Syria? To me, it's always been important that we obey the Constitution. And if we are to be involved in a war or send our young men and women, our brave soldiers to war, we should debate it in Congress and we should authorize the use of force. The reason they don't want to do this is the other side doesn't know who the heck we would be declaring war on. Would it be Turkey, our ally, the Free Syrian Army, which used to be our ally? Would it be Assad? The irony is that what the president has done, I think, was the wise thing to do. But the irony is that it actually may end up helping the Kurds more than anything else that's happened in recent history, because our involvement over there and our protection of the Kurds has kept the Kurds from talking to Assad. The civil war is largely over, and Assad is remaining doesn't make him a great uh, humanitarian or anything, but he is remaining. And I think their best chance for having a homeland up in the Northeast and having some autonomy would be to ally with Assad. And that's already happened, really, within the space of 12 to 24 hours uh, of our moving our troops, Assad and the Kurds allied. They have not largely fought each other during the Civil War, so there's not a great deal of anger between them. 
But the thing is, the Kurds are good fighters, and if the Kurds agreed to help Assad to control that territory, and Assad would talk to Erdogan and say, look, we're, I'm going to keep the Kurds away from the border, and we're, we're going to keep and prevent any Kurdish incursions into Turkey, I think there is actually a possibility for a peace to work out. Part of the reason we haven't been able to have peace in the past is that uh, we've refused to talk to, the, to Assad. We've said, we're going to wait till Assad's gone. Well, that could be never. So you're you're okay with the Kurds working with Assad, and and again though, the, do, do you do you are you convinced that this president is committed to staying this new course, uh, or are you concerned that he might put troops back in the region? I think the president's been pretty consistent that we were never staying. He said from the very beginning that we would help the Kurds uh, fend off ISIS. ISIS was attacking the Kurdish areas and killing uh, the Kurdish people. And so the Kurdish people, as well as the Arab people, you know, people don't realize that this army we call the Kurdish army is half Arab, half Kurd. They rose up to defend themselves, and we helped them to defend themselves. And he said we would be there to defeat ISIS and remove ISIS caliphate from owning and controlling land and cities. And we did that. ISIS is defeated. ISIS doesn't control any territory. And the Kurds and this Arab uh, coalition are stronger. But we were never staying. So I think the president's had a consistent uh, theme that uh, it was the defeat of ISIS was our goal, but that the Syrian civil war, the eight-year civil war, was messy, that we weren't going to be uh, responsible for trying to figure out uh, an end to the Syrian civil war. Withdrawing these troops was one of the president's main campaign promises. Do you think, given the way these troops are being sort of moved around, has the president fulfilled that promise? You know, I want more, but I am glad that the president is at least not adding more to the, you know, it's sort of like uh, the deficit. You can either add to the deficit or try to balance your year's budget. The, the president's at the very least not adding to the problem by adding more troops. So I think he his gut tells him that he would remove them, but every time he tries to even move 50 troops around, we have Lindsey Graham and all the war caucus, you know, hollering and hollering and pushing and pushing until he decides to relocate the troops. I do think that having 100 troops guard the oil in northeastern Syria is uh, not going to work and actually think that it is the trade that the Kurds have to have with Assad. Um, The oil is in Syria proper. Assad's going to remain. But I think he could make a deal where the Kurds are protecting the oil fields and working in conjunction with the Syrians. And in exchange for that, some of the oil proceeds stay in the local province there. That's kind of what happens in the Iraqi uh, Kurdish area, that some of the oil receipts, I believe, go to Baghdad, and some of the receipts are kept locally, and uh, they agree to be part of Iraq and stay part of Iraq. And that's kind of worked for them there. I think it could work in Syria, too. But the longer we stayed, the longer it prevented the Kurds from talking to Assad. We basically demanded they not talk to Assad. And I think we have to see the world as it is from a realistic point of view. Assad is an authoritarian with a terrible human rights record. Erdogan, not much better. And so you have authoritarians on both sides, and then you have another uh, wannabe authoritarian, Putin, in the middle of it. But guess what? He's talking to all three sides, and that's why actually Russia has a much better chance of uh, bringing about and all parties and bringing all parties to the table than we do, because, uh, frankly, Russia is willing to talk to all the parties involved. I'm curious, what do you think when you see these images, though, of these Kurdish forces who fought alongside American troops in this fight against ISIS, hurling potatoes at American troops as they leave the area. What does this say about, you know, Americans' devotion to to some of our partners? 
I think it says more about the Kurds than it does Americans. We help the Kurds. We save the Kurds from being beheaded and massacred by ISIS. We, they were able to win with our armament, with our Air Force, and they should be thanking us and throwing rose petals. And so, no, I'm offended by uh, them throwing refuse at our troops, and it shows them to be ingrates. Uh, frankly, we, we have uh, protected them. We have helped them win the war. And people in our country get it completely backwards. They're like, oh, uh, uh, the Kurds fought for, for us. No, they didn't. They fought for themselves. We had the same goal, and we helped them, but they were fighting for their villages not to be controlled by these ISIS thugs, and I think they will continue to fight that way. People say, oh, the Kurds are now because they're mad going to release the ISIS prisoners. Well, who do you think ISIS is first going to, to retaliate against? The people who live there. In fact, the likelihood that ISIS can do anything outside their territory is close to none. So I think really that the Kurds ought to be more, much more appreciative of what we've done for them. Senator, I want to talk to uh, uh, turn to the, the, the developments out of the Ukraine investigation, uh, the impeachment inquiry from Democrats. We heard yesterday from America's top diplomat in Ukraine, Bill Taylor, uh, a, a meticulous documenting, in his view, of, uh, of an effort by the, by the Trump White House to uh, organize um, a, a, what, what a, lot of, a lot of people's view is a quid pro quo. It seemed like a pretty clear roadmap that gets you from point A to point B based on his testimony. Was there anything in what you've read or heard about Bill Taylor or any of this that makes you at this point uncomfortable with aspects of President Trump's behavior? No, because it seems to me that both sides have been trying to make aid contingent on behavior. Both sides have threatened aid. Both but, but based sides on political probably, behavior? I mean, that, that's, both, the, that's both the difference here is political in, behavior. Both sides, no? both sides have been, been involved with sort of a quid pro quo in the sense that, you know, if you talk about politicians asking foreigners to do research or to dig up dirt on uh, potential political rivals, I would think that Hillary Clinton paying a British spy, Christopher Steele, to dig up dirt on Trump is exactly the same sort of thing that they're accusing Trump of. So I really think that the Democrats uh, don't have a leg to stand on here. Joseph Biden uh, threatening their aid, Menendez threatening their aid, Murphy threatening their aid. It seems like there's almost nobody in Washington who hasn't threatened Ukraine with uh, removing their aid unless they quid pro quo, unless Ukraine does what they want. So do you, do you think there was a quid pro quo and it's okay? No, I think that uh, what they're accusing the president of, they're guilty of. And so I think that the American people are going to see this as partisan politics because I believe that Joe Biden threatened their aid, and it was a quid pro quo. You don't get rid of the prosecutor, you don't get your aid. That's a quid pro quo. Uh, Menendez sent a letter saying, if you if you don't continue the Trump investigation, uh, there may be threats to your aid. We may reconsider our support for your aid. That's quid pro quo. Murphy was there a month ago, and Murphy said the same thing. He said, if you investigate Hunter Biden, we may reconsider our bipartisan support. All of that, to me, sounds like threats, implied or otherwise. So it sounds like everybody on both sides of the equation has been saying, hey, if, if, if you get aid from us, you need to do X. But really, that's kind of what foreign aid is in a way. Foreign aid is supposed to be contingent upon behavior. But even if you're saying that Democrats do this as well, does that make it okay? Does that make it appropriate for the president to try and pressure Ukraine in one way or another 
to investigate his political rivals, even if Democrats are doing it. Aside from that, is this appropriate? Is it all right? Well, I guess I have a different view. I I personally, if I'd been on the phone with Zelensky, would have said, hell no, you're not getting any aid no matter what you do because we don't need money. I think it makes no sense to borrow money from China to send it to Ukraine. I think the problem from the Democrat point of view here is they're going to have to convince the American people that they are honestly investigating the president because they honestly think he did something wrong. The fact that they did the same thing, it makes it uh, sort of their moral high ground is somewhat slippery if uh, they're, they're guilty of doing the same thing they're accusing the president of. I just want to go one more time at this. Do you think that the president's behavior on that call was appropriate? Yes or no? I think that any time we give aid to countries that both sides have really asked and both sides have basically said that the aid should be contingent upon behavior, in fact, a lot of people say that's exactly what foreign aid is in soft power, is to try to get other countries to do what you want. So, for example, when we give military aid to any country in the world, we require quid pro quo that they buy armaments from us. It's a rule. And so we insist on it. And so whether or not it's proper or improper for someone to ask about political dirt, if people are really honest and you really care about the question, you'd have to ask the same question of Hillary Clinton, which I haven't seen anybody in the media ask this. They should ask Hillary Clinton, was there a quid pro quo when you gave money to Christopher Steele for information on your political rival? You were giving money to a foreign entity, to Christopher Steele, a former British spy. Was that not a quid pro quo? the media is not willing to ask that question, they don't deserve to be able to ask any questions about Trump either. So to to be clear on the impeachment inquiry right now, would you say as of now, are you a flat no on, on convicting for impeachment? Are you convinced that there's nothing here that is impeachable? I think it's completely partisan. I think it's completely ginned up by Democrats who are angry about the election. They felt like they won the election. They're trying to overturn the results of the election. They're guilty of exactly the same thing they're accusing the president of. So, no, I think there's no basis at all for impeachment. I want to ask a little bit of a broader question, Senator, because I remember uh, the the fierce fights that you had with President Trump back when you were a candidate for president. I remember when you called him a delusional narcissist and an orange-faced windbag. And even said that a speck of dirt was more qualified to be president. What do you think of what would you say to your 2016 self when you see the the conduct now? Do you ever think to yourself, man, I kind of had a point when I see this president floundering in some ways? Or do you think, wow, I just had him entirely wrong? I think what happens over time is that people have fierce battles in primaries, and you see this you know, throughout the history of American politics, and you sometimes see that after a primary is over that people are surprised. I was worried at the time of the uh, primary about whether or not uh, Donald Trump would, would, would uh, once in office be a true conservative. It turns out I've been very pleasantly surprised. I mean, the uh, nominations to the court, we put 130-some-odd people on the court, have largely been uh, traditional conservative-slash-libertarian jurists. So I've been very pleased with that. We ended up having a large tax cut. Most of the Republicans up here were for a revenue-neutral tax cut. We ended up having a significant tax cut that grew the economy and actually brought in more tax revenue. So I think I've been very pleased with, and uh, you don't know everything about what a person will become when they're a candidate. You fight fiercely for your own election. But in the end, I've been very pleased that uh, President Trump has actually governed as a conservative. And finally, Senator, your book is called The Case Against Socialism. It isn't designed as a, as a re-election manual for, for Donald Trump, but how do you view the 2020 race uh, framing itself? And it, it does seem like there are a lot of Republicans that feel like there's fertile ground in running against socialism, whether or not the nominee is an avowed democratic socialist. 
I think that uh, it is worrisome for our country that, you know, 50 percent of young people are identifying with socialism and thinking it's a good thing. Socialism throughout history has been associated with famine and genocide. It's important that young people know that history, but it's also important that young people know that you can't dress up something evil like socialism with the word democratic and make it okay. Socialism time and time again, even when it began with elections, like in Venezuela, Chavez was elected, Maduro was elected. The elections now aren't fair, but that's sort of the history of socialism is you have elections in the beginning, but once they're elected, they become elected for life. But you also have the devolution into authoritarianism. You have the problem of starvation in one of the richest, oil-richest countries in the world, Venezuela. So people need to explore what socialism means and what it doesn't. And uh, now that we have people that are very proud of the label and using it on the Democrat side, I think the case against socialism is very, very important for our next generation. All right. Senator Rand Paul, Republican from Kentucky. Again, the book, The Case Against Socialism. Thanks for being here. Appreciate it. So, Mary, uh, the president has someone in his corner when it comes to foreign yeah. policy as well as impeachment. Rand Paul may be the closest ideologically at this moment to Donald Trump. Um, worries him to a lot of Republicans when it comes to Syria, but uh, not a lot of daylight there um, when it comes to impeachment either. No, but it is interesting that even Rand Paul, who is so closely linked to the president, isn't willing to say that, yes, on substance, what the president did was appropriate. And that really... I think is a perfect example of the challenge that so many Republicans on the Hill right now are facing, which is that they want to talk about process. They want to talk about what they feel uh, is misbehavior by the Democrats, but they aren't willing to really go to the mat on the substance of what the president is alleged of doing here. Both sides, he said, have been involved in sort of a quid pro quo when it comes to foreign policy. And we asked him directly, do, do you see a quid pro quo here? And he's like, well, no, but actually kind of, yeah, right? I mean, he's, he is saying this is what happens in foreign policy. It's a, it's a variation of what Mick Mulvaney said last week that got him in so much trouble. Yeah. Right. And he was he was acknowledging that that's how the game works. Get over it. This idea that, well, everybody does it. Well, that doesn't necessarily make it okay, especially when you are talking about the sitting president of the United States. Right. And it's it's interesting because, again, if you were looking the abstract and think, okay, where are you going to find if you're a Democrat, where are you going to find 20 Republicans to flip over and convict? Mm -hmm. Um, Looking at someone like Rand Paul, who had so such monumental clashes with uh, President Trump uh, back back in the campaign, you'd think that's one of the ones on your list. It didn't sound like it from at least this conversation. It does sound like he is more than comfortable sitting in Kentucky uh, representing the more libertarian wing on uh, on a range of issues in his party, that he is comfortable standing behind the president for whatever reason, even if it's not on his conduct on the question of impeachment. Yeah. And this is what we're seeing over and over again in the halls of the Capitol is that a lot of Republicans, most of them, the overwhelming majority of them are still willing to stand behind the president uh, for now. For now. As it as it develops. All right. That's all the time we have this week. Thank you to Mary Bruce Thank for you. being here. Thank you to Susie Lou for stepping in behind the controls for Trevor Hastings and for Angie Yak and Avery Miller and the whole team here at Powerhouse Politics. We'll see you next time and go Nats. <laughs>